Jesus, what a marvelous, wonderful, amazing, incomprehensible mystery that you as eternal word would be pleased as men with men to dwell. That you would be pleased to come and be a man with nature like ours. Dwelling among us and subjecting yourself to our weaknesses for the sake of rescuing us. What a precious gift this is. I pray this morning that as we dig into your word and scratch the surface of this mystery. That you would fill our hearts with wonder and worship. I pray that you would help us begin to comprehend the incomprehensible. And that you would stir in our spirits great joy as we do. Would you help us by your spirit now we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, we are on week two of Advent. What a good joy it is to be in this season and to be spending some time devoted to meditating on the great mystery of the incarnation. Our series title for these few weeks of Advent is Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to behold what is ultimately a mystery to us about the nature of our God and his works in order that we might worship him rightly. An old Presbyterian minister, Thomas Boston, talks about mystery in our belief this way. He says, the gospel is a doctrine of mysteries. Oh, what mysteries are here. The head in heaven, the members on earth, yet really united. Christ in the believer, living in him, walking in him, and the believer dwelling in God, putting on the Lord Jesus, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. This makes the saints a mystery to the world, yea, a mystery to themselves. I think that captures it, right? That all of these things about our faith that are ultimately mysteries are nonetheless worthy of our time and attention But the fact that they are mysteries means a few things for us. We talked about some of those things last week. Last week, the title of the sermon was The Mystery of the Incarnation. And we really tried to lay out this idea that the incarnation itself, this movement of God, the Son becoming man, the Word made flesh, as John 1, 1, or John 1, 14, excuse me, puts it, the Word become flesh. This is the central mystery of our faith. Because it's a mystery, we can't seek to solve all of the problems around it. We can't explain it fully, or we're going to end up actually try, actually articulating heretical doctrine, false things about our Savior. But because it is a central mystery of our faith, we have to say true things about it. We have to consider what the implications are. And the goal for our consideration is not merely that we would fully understand it, Because that's not going to be possible. It's going to remain a mystery to us. But the goal of our consideration is that we would then be moved to confess rightly and to worship God. As we meditate on these truths. 
Last week we said that the incarnation, in the incarnation, God in the person of the Son became part of his own creation. That's what the incarnation means. In order that we might share in his life. We talked about Jesus knowing perfectly as a member of the triune God, knowing the persons of the triune God, knowing the Father and knowing the Spirit and knowing the fullness of the intertrinitarian life and love. And giving that knowledge to us in his person. Bringing us into that life and love so that we might experience through Christ, relationally, that we might experience God. That we might know him. This week we're going to dig further into that mystery. And we're going to look at one of the implications of that mystery. The sermon title for this morning is called The Mystery of Jesus' Weakness. And the mystery that we're going to look into more, the, the, the aspect of the incarnation that we're going to explore more, is this question, what did it mean for Jesus to assume our humanity? What did it mean for Jesus to become a man? The problem I want us to try to address as we explore these kind of things is we tend to hold Jesus in his humanity at arm's length from us. We know this reality that Jesus never sinned, and we feel the reality that after Adam, sin is such an integral part of who we are as human beings. That we hold Jesus farther away than we ought to. What I want you to see this morning, and what I want me to see this morning from God's word, is that Jesus is much nearer than we realize. That Jesus, in assuming our humanity, is much nearer than we realize. Not only is he a friend of sinners... But in taking on their nature, he actually identifies with sinners in a deep, deep way. In a way that is not insignificant to our faith and life. What I want us to see this morning, though, is that Jesus shared in our weakness to rescue us from it. And we're going to look at that in two parts. We're going to look first at what it means that Jesus shared in our weakness. And then we're going to look at the implications of that. What does it mean then that he rescues us from that weakness. Jesus shared in our weaknesses is what I want to explore first. And I want to assert that he is like us in all things except for sin. This is what the Chalcedonian definition, remember this is a, a, an ancient document from the mid-400s as a result of a gathering of church leaders trying to say, what do we affirm about who Christ is and what he has done and what it means that he is like us, he is human. And they said it this way, he is of the same essence as the Father according to his deity. Jesus is God. And the same one is of the same essence with us according to his humanity. Like us in all things except sin. I think that's, the, that's a key summary of what we mean when we say Jesus assumed our humanity. He is like us in all things except sin. And I think we emphasize the except sin part fine, but then we don't really wrap our minds around what does it mean for him to be like us in all things except sin, right? We, we hold him at arm's length because of the sin part and we don't embrace the like us in all things. And so that's what I want to help us do this morning. Go ahead and change the slide now. The second London Baptist Confession puts it this way. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, 
of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. Did take upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. That's just another way of saying, like us in all things, except sin. We see this in the scriptures if we go to Hebrews chapter 2. Go ahead and switch the slide. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, this idea, like us in all things, except sin. Hebrews chapter 4, which we'll talk about a little bit later, says Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. The scriptures repeatedly affirm that Jesus is without sin. And yet I want to focus more on the aspect of like us in all things. Taking upon us or upon him, excuse me, our common infirmities. This means that Jesus experienced the weaknesses of our human nature. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. We see that in Matthew 4. Jesus knows what it's like to be thirsty. We see that clearly in John 19. He knows what it's like to be tired and sleep. This is why he's asleep when the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes upon them. It's not because Jesus was just shutting down like some kind of robot. He was tired. And he slept. He must have been real tired to be sleeping through a storm. He knows what it's like to be filled with sadness. Think about him at the grave of Lazarus as he weeps. This is a very human thing to do, right? This is, even though he knows he's got the power to raise him up, he still feels that sadness. He's filled with great sorrow, we see in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus took on true humanity. He is really one of us. I'm going to switch slides here and find my spot back. I think it's working now. No dice. We'll have to have you keep going. That's okay. That's okay. God is good. We will be fine. Um, can you switch back one slide though, Mel? There we go. I'll, I'll cue you. Thank you. Thanks for your patience. All right. So he's like us taking on this true humanity, really one of us. Most of us don't have a problem affirming that Jesus experienced the same kind of things we do when it comes to being hungry, tired, uh, thirsty, those kind of things, right? We don't have a problem affirming that Jesus was an actual human being. If you did, you believe in a heresy called docetism, and it's been denied since the 3rd century AD. So don't believe that. Jesus did actually have a human body. We know that. But we test the limits of all things when we think about Jesus in relation to temptation. Okay? We tend to accept Jesus' humanity except when it comes to sharing in our experience of temptation. 
And that's what I want to talk about today with him sharing in our weakness. I want to focus on his shared experience of our temptation. The Bible does not make a tempta- an exception for temptation when it talks about Jesus being made like us in every respect. In fact, Hebrews 4 makes that point, right? That's what we're going to read next, and I think we need to transition. Yeah, There we go. Okay. Listen to Hebrews four fourteen to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is like us, not just in general, but like us in our temptations. And he has been in every respect tempted as we are. This idea that he's been in every respect tempted as we are is not stressing that Jesus has experienced every temptation we experience. That's kind of what I used to think it meant, right? That Jesus somehow miraculously has knows exactly what every single temptation is like and the variety of temptations we encounter. That's not what it's talking about. When the author of Hebrews writes that he has been in every respect tempted as we are, he is stressing that Jesus' experience of temptation is the same as our experience of temptation because he shares in our nature. In other words, because Jesus took on himself humanity, he experiences temptation as a human. This is important because in an effort to affirm Jesus' sinlessness, when we hold him at arm's length, sometimes then we view his experience of temptation as if it's qualitatively different from our own. Somehow Jesus was tempted, but not really in the same way as we are, right? He's, he somehow has this superhuman ability, this extra special something that means the temptations he experiences, they're, they're probably real temptations, but maybe not really. I'm not saying any of us would be probably false enough or against the scriptures to say that out loud, but that's how we functionally think about these things quite often. I know I do, and I know people I talk to do, so I'm assuming all of us do in some way or another. We treat Jesus' temptations like they are different from ours, but I think Hebrews 4 teaches us that Jesus experienced temptation in the same way we do. Go ahead and switch to the next slide now with James. Let's think about James 1, 13 to 15, how we experience temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Because of our first parents' disobedience, Adam and Eve's disobedience, our desires are corrupted by the fall. It is the nature of our corrupted desires... That seeks out then sin and gives birth to sin and that grows into death, right? This is our, this is our path as fallen creatures. This is part of our nature now. I believe that what Hebrews is teaching us 
when Jesus has been tempted in every respect as we are, and yet without sin. And I believe this is, this is the same thing that the confessions are teaching us when they talk about like us in every respect except sin. That Jesus experienced the pull of these desires, pulling him towards disobedience to the Father. And yet, what is unique about him is not that he did not experience these things. What is unique about him is that he broke the chain of causality here, right? He did not allow those temptations to then give birth to sin, which led to death, right? He did what Adam and Eve ought to have done when they experienced these things in themselves. What we ought to do when we experience these things in themselves, in ourselves, he did. The difference is not in not experiencing these desires, but in breaking that cycle of self-centered rebellion. To instead perfectly obey the Father. This is hard to figure out how to even say carefully enough that we don't say something wrong about Jesus because I do not want to imply that he was in any way sinful. This is not true. We know he is without sin. I asked a pastor and friend of mine how to describe this and he put it this way and I thought it was helpful. He said sin was actually tempting because Jesus became like us. If Jesus was not like us, sin would not have been tempting at all. But Jesus was tempted because he became like us and now has the pull of the flesh that he enfleshed himself with. When he took on our nature, it pulled him towards sin. I just want to pause here for a minute and marvel at this mystery. James says, God cannot be tempted with evil. But the nature of temptation is pulling us away from God towards evil. And Jesus experienced temptation. Somehow in the incarnation, Jesus, truly God, became truly man while remaining truly God. And was therefore able to be tempted. This is part of the mystery. We can't explain this fully. We can just say we see scripture teaching it and marvel at it. The mystery is through the incarnation, while Jesus remained God-man, he subjected himself to our weakness with corrupted desires pulling towards temptation. And he himself conquered those desires by remaining without sin, by continuing to obey the Father. Go ahead and change the slide, Mel. We know from Hebrews chapter, chapter 4, as we look at verse 15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never gave in to the fallen nature of humankind. He never allowed that sin to come to fruition. Rather, he remained without sin. We see this all over the New Testament, the affirmation of Jesus' sinless character. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for example, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But we must, friends, we must remember that in affirming the sinlessness of our Savior, we must not deny that Jesus experienced our kinds of temptation. Because the Bible teaches that he did. Jesus knows what it's like, in other words, to get up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning. Right When we get up on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak, we are 
ornery for some reason from not sleeping well the previous night. And we take it out on those around us. Jesus knows what that's like, only he doesn't take it out on those around him. Right? He instead takes that fallen, corrupt nature and bends it back towards God. He gets up on the wrong side of the bed. He feels that angst, and yet he does not sin. Jesus knows what it's like to feel hangry. Right? I, I, I know many of us, when we do not eat well, our blood sugar gets way off and we get kind of cranky. And we take it out on the people around us. We call it hangry because we see the outward effects. Jesus knows what it's like to feel those things. But he does not sin in doing that. He takes those blood sugar levels that are maybe off, especially while he was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, and he turns his desires towards God. He reminds himself, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus experiences temptation, but remains sinless. This means, friends, that Jesus lived a truly sinless life, and it was a truly human sinless life. He is tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Go ahead and change the next slide, Mel. Consider for a minute with me the Garden of Gethsemane. Consider Jesus' experience in this garden setting. He had just had his supper with his disciples and they had all assured him, we will never, ever abandon you. Jesus knows what's coming. And so he goes off to pray. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watching and praying that you may not enter in, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We must be careful when we read texts like this from moving too quickly between father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me and not as I will, but as you will. We can move so quickly to not as I will, but you will that we deny any sense of temptation for Jesus or any sense of of experiencing the suffering that comes with battling against desires that are contrary to God. Again, I want to be careful in how I speak, but I think we can say with confidence, the flesh that is weak that Jesus talks about, right? When when the disciples are, are supposed to stay up with him and they've just pledged their undying loyalty to him, And then they can't even stay up for an hour and watch with him. And he says, that's because your your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Jesus had that same flesh. Jesus had that same weak flesh. And if we skip too quickly over 
this idea of, Father, if it possible, let this pass, cup pass from me. And we skip straight to not I will, but you will. We end up really not absorbing that reality. Here we see Jesus buffeted by the sorrows of weak-willed disciples, giving into the flesh, and even later by the betrayal of his friends. The betrayer that comes is his friend Judas. That hurt. Jesus may have been tempted, and indeed I believe was, to flee from his mission. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's a, that's a real desire. That's not a performative act for our benefit. That's a, this is terrible and difficult and hurtful and sad. And Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then Jesus takes these desires and he bends them back towards the Father and says, not as I will, but as you will. This is what it means for the eternal son of God to subject himself to our weakness, to the weakness of our human nature. Go ahead and switch slides to slide 12. We see this all in the book of Hebrews as well. Verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4:15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Experiencing those weaknesses. Hebrews 5, 7 to 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus is tempted as we are. And yet... And yet, without sin. And yet, he does not capitulate. But he instead triumphs over our nature. There's a vital implication to this that we must recognize. This is that only Jesus knows the full measure of what it means to be tempted. Only Jesus knows the full measure. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, slide 13, go ahead. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full, to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. If you give yourself completely over to every desire that wells up inside you, that births sin, it will lead to death, but it will be really easy. You will not feel the struggle of temptation because you'll just give in. And I've noticed something that's really interesting to me as I, as I meet with different folks and as I experience it in my own life. It seems the norm of the Christian life that as you begin to fight sin... And as you begin to pursue holiness, you experience what seems like an explosion of sin in your life. And you experience what seems like temptation that is more severe than you've ever, ever encountered. That's just this principle in action. That's, that's temptation rising 
because you are resisting sin. And that's the that's you becoming more aware of the sin in your life because you're no longer just capitulating. And if you think it's bad when you're just scratching the surface of what holiness and obedience to God looks like, try to imagine what it must have felt like for Christ. Because he never gave in. We give in. And we, we capitulate to sin. He never gave in. And so he is the only re- complete realist, as C.S. Lewis puts it. The one who knows the full measure of our fallen nature. Because he became obedient even to the point of death. He kept obeying. He kept being faithful. He didn't do all of this, though, so that he could just be an example for us, an inspiration, someone who we could look to and say, I want to be like that. He did all of this, taking on this weakness and overcoming it so that he could rescue us from this weakness. Go ahead and switch to the next slide now. He did this in order to rescue us from our weakness. Jesus shared in our weakness to rescue us from it. And that's the component I want to look at next. Go ahead and switch slides. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. It's not just so that he can experience what we experience, but it's for a purpose. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came to experience our weakness so that he could rescue us from it. So that he could help. This begs the question though. Why does Jesus as the creator of all things including us. Need this kind of experience. Need this kind of knowledge of us. Why would he, in other words, need to experience temptation like this in order to be a sympathetic high priest? It's not like Jesus lacked some knowledge. Calvin addresses this question in his commentary on these texts in really helpful ways. And I think he's absolutely right. Slide 16, Mal. There we go. He says this. The Son of God had no need of experience that he might know the emotions of mercy. He was already merciful. The Son of God had no need of experience that he might know the emotions of mercy, but we could not be persuaded that he is merciful and ready to help us had he not become acquainted by experience with our miseries. He says that about Hebrews 2.17, and then a little bit later about Hebrews 4.15, he says this, Christ has put on our flesh and also its feelings or affections, So that he not only paroled himself to be real man, but had also been taught by his own experience to help the miserable. Not because the Son of God had need of such training, but because we could not otherwise comprehend the care he feels for our salvation. In other words, Jesus experiencing these things so that he could become this merciful and faithful high priest, so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses, is not primarily because he had something he lacked and he needed in order to be able to accomplish it. It was so that in doing this, he could so identify with us that we would believe that he is indeed a faithful, merciful, 
sympathetic high priest able to help us. He is able to help us by nature of him taking on our very nature and bending it back towards God. And he did it this way so that we would become acquainted, uh, so, so that we could be persuaded that he is merciful and ready to help us. So that we could comprehend the care he feels for our salvation, as Calvin says. Jesus, how does Jesus then express this care for our salvation? I think Hebrews four fourteen to 16 shows us at least three things. The first one is that Jesus is able to sympathize with us. Jesus will sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Particularly, I want to draw your attention to verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The idea being, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. A little bit later in Hebrews, uh, in chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, which comes immediately after this text. The author of Hebrews goes back and points to human priests. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He's not primarily making this point, though, just about human high priests. He is saying that part of what makes a human high priest able to deal gently is his sharing in the weaknesses of those he represents. And he's been arguing that Jesus shared in those weaknesses. So just like these human high priests, Jesus himself is able to deal gently. Notice who he deals gently with. It's not the, not the ones that are, you know, trying their hardest and they come and they bring what they've got and it's not quite enough. And so the high priest deals gently with them because they tried really hard. It's dealing gently with the ignorant and the wayward. The ones who are totally enthralled with the weaknesses that they are experiencing. Because he is a sympathetic high priest, he deals gently with them. This too is how Jesus treats us. He deals gently with us. This means that Jesus knows you and knows what it's like to be you in an experiential way. He he knows you down to your core because he has experienced those same weaknesses that you and I experience. This is not a disconnected God who is distant from you, who doesn't get what you're like, who doesn't care. This is a God who's closer than a brother. This is, this is a God who draws near to you in such a way that he gets you. I just think about uh, human friendships. When you encounter someone who you're just like, man, we get each other. Like what joy is that? What kind of, what kind of encouragement? That, like, you want to spend time with them. You want to get to know them. You want to go deeper in that relationship. Because they get you. This is, Jesus gets you. Jesus is sympathetic towards you. He knows what it's like to experience your weaknesses and experiences even with you. And this means that he is indeed able to sympathize, that he will sympathize, that he does sympathize. The incarnation shows that he will do this. That's what Calvin's point is, that Jesus becoming man shows that he's going to do this. Not, not that he might If we try really hard and he'll meet us halfway or something like that. But that he does. That he will. And because, like we talked about last week, Jesus unites God and man in himself. 
and Jesus does not cease to be part of the triune God, this means that not only does Jesus sympathize with your weaknesses, but the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is able to sympathize. The triune God is not unmoved by your suffering. But God, Father, Son, and Spirit cares and draws near. And the depths he goes to do so are such that it caused the eternal word of God to become enfleshed in our nature and to experience our weaknesses. we switch sides now. Not only is he willing to sympathize, but he's willing to be merciful. He's able to be merciful, and indeed, he is merciful. Hebrews 4 again, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy. Or we saw in 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. By being merciful towards us, the Son, and by extension, the triune God, does not give us what we deserve. This mercy is enabled, of course, by propitiation. By, by being the sacrifice that satisfied the right justice of God, Jesus has earned the right to extend mercy towards you and I. But the, his identification with us means that his mercy is not a mere necessary transaction. In other words, it's not just that he wants us to be with him and mercy's kind of got to get it out of the way and got to, you know, suck it up and take one on the chin. His mercy, rather, is a willing act arising from his compassion for us. This is what it means when Jesus experiences our weakness. He is moved to sympathy with us. And out of that sympathy for us, he extends mercy. Because, like we read about in Exodus, he is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who he is, and so he delights to extend mercy. To you and I. He does it by choice. Merciful towards us in our weaknesses. This is what it means when John records. God so loved the world. It's God loved the world in this way. By sending his son Jesus. To extend mercy to us. And that mercy continues day by day. He's able to be merciful. And he does. And then the next slide. He's able to be helpful. And he does. He's willing to help us. Verse 16 again, Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to find grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews 2.18. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Propitiation itself, reconciliation with God, is the most important help that he gives. But it's not the only help. This is, I think, important for us to grasp. This is why it's so vital to consider the implications of the incarnation. Because the incarnation means that the only help is not propitiation on the cross. But a help that runs much deeper than that. A help that gives us a high priest who's able to sympathize and willing to extend mercy. And then offer real help. In this book, The Incarnation of God, which got right here. I've been reading and thoroughly enjoying, finished it a little while ago. They make this point about understanding the significance of Jesus' incarnation. They say failure to grasp the significance of this incarnation 
suggests that Christ fulfilled the conditions of our salvation, propitiation, only to throw us back on ourselves, only to be far from us as we seek to draw near to God. This prompts preoccupation with our faith, our repentance, our decision, our response, our industry, and our resolve. A veneration of the saints of quite another sort. Resulting in frantic busyness and crushing internalization of sin, guilt, fear, and shame. In other words, if the only help that Jesus provides is propitiation, Christ fulfilling the conditions of our salvation only to throw us back on ourselves, then he's just set us back at ground zero and we're like new Adam and Eve. But that's not what Christ did. That's not what the incarnation tells us. The incarnation tells us that Jesus came and so identified with us in our weaknesses that he took on our nature. And it's that nature that he is redeeming and bending back towards God. And the help he provides is help in that very nature. Jesus truly helps us in the midst of our weaknesses. He makes us alive when we are dead, Ephesians 2, right? But then he continues to bend us back towards God. He continues to sanctify us in his very person as we are united to him by his spirit. That's what we're going to talk about more next week. He doesn't do this out of obligation or pity, but rather because he himself sympathizes with us and delights to offer the help that he gives. It's like a, like, like a physician who is trained to treat patients. And that physician, after spending years training and thinking about and dreaming about being able to help people who are ill, when they come to him, he doesn't reject them. He doesn't say, like, how dare you get sick and then come to me. Right? He says, no, come in. Let me help you. Let me see what's wrong. Let me do what I can. This is the kind of delight that Jesus has as the good physician. He delights to help sinners in their weakness. Jesus will help and the depth he has gone to prove it is taking on our very flesh. His willingness to draw near to us in the incarnation to identify with us so deeply that he takes on our nature, assures us that he will be near to us to help in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our sadness and temptations, Jesus will be near. He's proven it definitively. Go ahead and change slides, Mel. In this book, the authors summarize this concept this way, and I, I just find it so helpful and so moving. They say this, He took for himself our corrupted humanity, decisively bent towards sin and being battered and buffeted by ever stiffening headwinds of opposition. He bent it back towards God. This is what it means for Jesus to take on our humanity, to experience the kinds of temptations we do and bend his will back towards God by the power of his very person filled with the spirit of God. He took our corrupted humanity and bent it back towards God. And he did this so that we might come to know God as he does. And so that we might come to experience the love and life of the triune God. As a result, then, we ought to do what Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 tells us. Go ahead and change slides. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We hold fast. We remain holding fast to this confession that Jesus is truly God and truly man, like us in all respects except sin. We hold fast to that and we become amazed then at his life of obedience, his life of righteousness. I just can't even comprehend how Jesus could obey the father if he experienced the kind of temptation that I do. Like, how could he? Yeah, I'm at a loss for words and we ought to be because it is really a mystery. Be amazed at his faithful obedience. Hold fast to this confession. He is truly able to save. And then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Come to him for help. He really delights to help us. He has proven it. By taking all of this on. He has proven that he will come and draw near to sinners who cry out to him. And so friends, draw near to the throne of grace and receive that mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Let's pray. Jesus' words fail us to even begin to express the amazement we feel and the gratitude we feel for all that you have done. And so, Jesus, I I just in our behalf draw near and ask you to help us mercifully and graciously help us to behold these things, behold these truths over and over and over and over again. Jesus, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So take our hearts and bind us to yourself. Help us to rest in these things and delight in them. In the midst of our sorrows and our trials and our temptations, remind us that you are indeed sympathetic and merciful and present to help. And Jesus, may we delight in that help and give you all the praise. Amen.